Hello, is it me you're looking for? You can find me on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Spotify. You can find me on Google and Stitcher if you try. There's Radio Public too and a bunch of other apps. Join me on social media. I love you. How was that? Nope, not impressed. Eh, I tried. Hi everyone. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about something I really love. Therapy, psychological therapy, going to a psychologist and talking about your mental health. Therapy is one of my favorite things. It's like a massage. Sometimes it gets really painful. And you have to go in and iron out really sore spots. And sometimes you feel worse afterwards. But always, invariably, you feel a lot better in the long term. Going to therapy, going to see a psychologist for a lot of issues to do with family, identity, depression, anxiety, all of these things uh, has really helped me to become the the best version of myself so far I mean there's always room to go up or down from here but at 33 I like myself I accept myself and I know myself much better than I have at any other age some of that is also to do with age yes but a lot of it has to do with going to see a therapist and learning to be unafraid of the vagaries of the mind of the different aspects of myself, touching upon the parts that were traumatized, touching upon the parts that were too scared to come out, uh, and, and just learning to be okay with who I am in all my flaws and in all my beautiful aspects. And also improving myself. Things that I think are not working for me anymore are toxic behaviors or are behaviors that are really not helping me find uh, a stable life. And when I say stable, I mean with the regular amounts of ups and downs, but not too many downs. So things that are not really helping me find a stable life, finding them bit by bit, dealing with them, ironing them out, finding coping mechanisms for them. All of this has happened through therapy. I love it. So my guest today is somebody who's studying to be a psychologist. She is Niharika Hiramach. I first met Niharika when she was a sprightly 16-year-old. And now she is a poised and confident woman of 24 and has grown up into this amazing, powerful woman who speaks with such conviction, clarity and uh, passion about mental health. She is an advisor. She is a mental health commissioner uh, on the advisory board of the National Mental Health Commission. That's really impressive for such a young person to be on that. But, but she was nominated to be on that position because of her lived experience with depression and mental health. She also works with Headspace, which is an organization that works in the mental health sphere for young people in Australia. And I was honored to have her on the podcast. Niharika and I talked about a lot of things growing up as immigrant kids and how, what the intersection of uh, being an immigrant and, and mental health looks like how to find somebody, a psychologist, how to uh, be patient with the process of getting therapy, um, how the mental health um, 
framework in Australia looks a little bit, what the landscape is like. Lots of really interesting topics. And the takeaway from this is everyone has a mental health, as Niharika said. I agree completely. Everyone has a mental health that needs maintenance, that needs treatment now and then, regardless of whether you have a genetic predisposition for mental ill health or not. So everyone needs to go in and get some help now and then in whatever way in their lives with their mental health. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Towards the end, we do touch upon the topic of suicide. So if you're sensitive to that, if you're feeling that you don't want to listen to that, I'll give you a warning just before we jump into that part. Enjoy! This is Amrita and you're listening to Heckin' Concerned Podcast. Heck, heck, heck. Hi Niharika. Hello. Welcome to Hacking Concern Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it seems like only yesterday that you were a sprightly 16-year-old <laughs> cavorting around a community's hall and we did community music performances together. Yes, back in the day. Back in the day. Look at you now. <laughs> All depressed um, and shit. <laughs> how did you know? <laughs> um I am really grateful to have you on the podcast to talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. I know that it's not an easy thing for people to talk about. Uh, so you are now on the commission, National Mental Health Commission. You're a commissioner. Mm-hmm. What What does your role entail? So I basically, um, I think the overarching idea, so a lot of what the commission does is um, monitor and sort of provide um, recommendations on, on policy and how sort of services are functioning um, in the country around mental health. And, and my primary role is to sort of bring the lived experience of a young person and particularly a, a culturally and linguistically diverse young person um, to inform those decisions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're a commissioner and you go and talk to people in communities and then you think about ways in which mm-hmm. your experience reflects theirs and how together you Mm -hmm. can combine those Mm -hmm. ideas to make the mental health system better for everyone. Exactly right. Hmm. Couldn't have put it better myself. (laughs) Well, I should be on the commission. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you are, when you say uh, CALD, culturally and linguistically diverse, you're Indian, Mm -hmm. like me. I am indeed. Go Indians. Yes. Woohoo! Do you think Uh, that way? Do you think? (laughs) (laughs) And that's where we met in the Indian community. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think when we were young, we would have ever discussed mental health with each other. No, I don't think so either. I think um, mental health as a concept has really only taken off, um, especially in the diverse communities, very, very recently. Um, I think those feelings and and the experiences have been around for a long time, but the language around it um, and seeing it as an issue um, in and of itself is a very recent thing, Mm. definitely. I'm a good generation older than you. Mm. So uh, what do the youngsters these days, what are they talking about mental health? Do they know much in your circles? Um, Yes and no. I think um, thankfully there's a lot more sort of education um, and awareness raising that's been happening um, recently. So definitely it is a hot topic, if you will. Um, but I think, yeah, when it comes down to really um, knowing a lot about it, probably probably not as much as you would want. Yeah. How mm. many of your friends go to therapy? Um, not enough. No, okay. Um, not, not very many, Mm. not very many. Um, I think it's, it's really the, 
not knowing what it's going to be like, what it would entail, how much of yourself you have to reveal, all of those things really acting as barriers, I guess, mm-hmm. for people accessing accessing help. Mm. So try not to move your head too sorry, much. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no, don't apologize. Yeah, yeah. It's a directional mic, so I'm just letting you know. Ah, uh, yeah. So if you sort of oh, no, I'm doing, way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, I'll, yeah. Yes. Sorry. No, I, no, so I know fun. it's a bit unnatural. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll get used, we'll get to, used it to it in a while. Yeah, that's all good. No, um, so, yeah, you were saying that not too many of your friends are going to therapy because there's, is there a lot of, feeling among young people that if they're feeling unwell in their mind then they're just going to deal with it themselves yeah unfortunately yes definitely there is a um i guess lack of trust in in the system because there's not a lot of knowledge about it and often because till now you've had to sort of deal with it yourself there's not really people talking Mm -hmm. openly about this stuff um definitely i think you know, speaking as a young person myself and, and having sort of been through that process myself, there was a large element of um, pressure to mm. deal with it mm. by myself. Mm-hmm. One of my worries when I first considered going to a therapist, mm-hmm. and this is so cute because my very first therapist that I went to, my mom actually helped me find. Oh. And she helped me find a Sri Lankan one. Oh, amazing. <laughs> thinking they might be closer to the culture. Yeah. And she came with me for my first appointment. Yeah. And she sat down and she said to the to the therapist, mm. you know, in our culture, we have like foods, like, you know, we eat like sambar. It's the same as yours. Yeah. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, stop talking mother oh, no. and, and the therapist was very kindly she's like yes, yes yes i know i know these things but i was like sambar i've heard of sambar i've heard of sambar it's like mom they're good yeah she doesn't care about sambar stop it mom and oh. for those who are listening and don't know sambar is like a a south indian um gift from lentil. the gods gift from the god. <laughs> yes it's yeah. a gift it's a godly divine lentil soupy curry mm. dish mm. um and so so but my a lot of my, the times my feeling has been can the therapist understand mm. the my, me as a human of course i have a similar to all of the people in the world a common set of experiences but then culturally mm. what are the factors um in my family that are very specific to indian families will they be able to understand it if mm. they don't haven't you know spoken much with indian people before or, or. Mm. so that was one of my fears yes luckily mm. all of the therapists i've had have been i've had to educate some of them about sure. the context of what i'm talking about and why it's important to me yes. but they ha- there hasn't been any judgment they've obviously listened and yeah. cottoned on pretty quickly yeah um i think um just drawing back to one of the things that you were saying before in terms of people having very common experiences, I think there's definitely elements of our experience that are very particular to the culture and our tradition and our background, but there's also elements of being a young person, of being, you know, a woman, of being, like, in a relationship or not in a relationship, like, all of these elements that that are really sort of broad and encompassing. And I think, um, you know any any good therapist that you're going to um really the most important thing is that you as much as you feel comfortable of course open yourself up and like you said educate them if you need to um and at the end of the day good therapists generally will listen to that and try and make those links for you that you might not be able to see um keeping in mind those cultural contexts mm-hmm. um and don't get me wrong i think there's a long way to go when it comes to culturally competent 
practices um, around mental health and, and illness, especially, um, especially in migrant communities where it's not openly talked about. It's a very new, nuanced topic. And it's, you know, it seems to be almost like a... Um, a little bit tokenistic at the moment because people are sort of like, oh, like this is the new thing and, mm. you know, it'll kind of go away. But really, if you look at it, like those experiences have been around for a long time. They're going to stay around for a long time. Yeah, very tokenistic. I remember feeling very lonely in my... So my parents came to Australia in 2001. I was 15 years old and we moved into a neighborhood which had a lot of Indians. Mm. We had already formed a network of Indian families here even before we came through sure. contacts and friends of friends. Mm -hmm. And I remember growing up and feeling very lonely uh, in that I, d I didn't feel white enough like the other white Australian kids in my school. And I didn't feel Indian enough because everyone else looked so perfect from the outside. <laughs> and my family yeah. was this freakish family. We weren't ideal, perfect model Indians. No. We weren't Australian. Yeah. Um, and because I think this might be common to a lot of migrant families, mm. In, in a new culture, your parents try to protect you and sort of hold you even closer. Oh, yes. Uh, for the fear that you might stray away. And there mm. was this element of don't discuss your problems with others. Mm. What happens in the family stays in the family. <laughs> yes. And you can't really, you can't really trust others because they're not, they won't understand you. This no. feeling or this fear of my parents was passed down to me. Yes. Uh, and so I, I for the longest time, um, didn't really feel like, others especially people of other races and ethnicities and cultures in Australia would understand me yeah now it's such a relief to me to know that mm. I'm no different than anyone else Not it's at all. we're all the same but mm -hmm. this very basic lesson took a long time to sink in and it partially happened through therapy sure through sharing when I saw therapists of different ethnicities understanding my experiences validating them yes that's yes. when I felt able to own my humanness yes. regardless of ethnicity yeah amazing i um a couple of years ago i um had an article in the newspaper i was talking about my experience with anxiety and you will not believe in the following week i had more than 10 people privately message me um they're like long stories about how they'd been dealing with anxiety with depression with schizophrenia um, you know, for upwards of 12, 13 years of their lives. And these were people that I'd worked with, people that I had sort of met in a university setting, in a community setting, um, that I just, you know, you, you just don't know. People don't talk about this stuff openly. And it was hilarious because, you know, it was like message after message of people saying, I've always felt alone in this. I don't feel like I can relate to anyone. I felt like I've had to deal with it myself. And I'm like, so many of these people know other people, like, you know, mm. know the other people. And it's, I think, um, unfortunately, the way that sort of that, that open communication and the vulnerability has been fostered means that people feel very alone. Mm. You're 100% right. Mm. Um, and, and unfortunately, it, it really takes those diverse circumstances like going to, you know, therapists of, of different sort of nationalities or in my position, seeing all of these people sort of divulging this information to me because I shared my story. Um, it really just takes those things to, I guess really know that people are not alone when it comes to this type of stuff. And in fact, mm. everyone is, you know, definitely not dealing with the same things or mm. even similar things, but dealing with diversity and adversity and these mental health challenges. And it doesn't it just makes it so much worse when you're doing it by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. You're right. It takes, it takes adversity to, it took me feeling like an absolute empty shell of a person to become 
a much better and integrated human being as integrated as an a socially mm. better person mm-hmm. it took complete isolation yeah. for me to be able to reach out across mm-hmm. at, at, at that point you have nothing to lose you don't feel like yourself no. you don't wear so so a bit of a background i have um depression and recently much to my relief actually i was also diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder sure cuz i why i say relief is because i knew i had depression but i was feeling frustrated at how i would get anxious about things at the drop of a mm. pin mm-hmm. the drop of a hat sorry mm-hmm. um anything could make me anxious and mm. i would feel like such a failure sure. as a person sure. to be this ball of nerves all the time yeah you know i was like i should be more resilient i should be tougher i should stop making such a big deal of everything but i couldn't stop yeah and now it's such a relief to have a diagnosis that that's my mental wiring yeah and i am because of my nature and my circumstances mm-hmm. predisposed yes to making a big deal out of everything sure and now i can manage it because i i can name it yeah so it it took me uh to that point of being you know so depressed and anxious and having nothing to lose mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. to then feel like i was a i was a part of every other persons like, we're all the same yeah. yeah 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 no definitely and i think um that's really interesting that you bring that up as well because i think um you know if you go back 10 years 20 years like it's often that um sort of being able to name it and and give i guess the power to something that is apart from you like often now we say um in the clinical setting especially that it's not right to sort of say that someone is depressed or someone is anxious it's more that someone has depression and yeah. someone has anxiety mm. um and really the underlying thing there is that it is not your full and entire identity it is something that's a part of you and that informs who you are um but it doesn't have to make up everything that you are yes um and that you know that's one way of looking at it the other thing that's sort of like been emerging though recently is that sometimes that label can be a bit murky and un- not understood very clearly and um and i'm finding that especially in in linguistically diverse communities or culturally diverse communities often describing your experiences has a a profound effect. So telling someone that you have depression t- tends to get them a little bit offside mm-hmm. because it's very empowering for yourself and of course to each their own. Um but I think if you, you know, especially in families and and that kind of circumstance telling someone that you're, you know, have been feeling really low for a, a long period of time, um the motivation to get out of bed or do things just on a day-to-day basis is not there. Mm. Um because those are such sort of human experiences that make up mm. that you know depression label mm. um often it's a little bit easier to yeah such a good point yeah because the word Late depression to. is scary mm. it implies just everything sinking low yes uh, it reflects you know the great depression of the 1920s in <laughs> yeah. america it just implies a place where yeah, everything no... is sunk there's no yeah. hope yeah. but if you describe the individual symptoms or the feelings associated with that yeah. everyone can relate to that exactly right yeah you're right and especially when it comes to the more severe stuff like mm. stuff like schizophrenia um the personality disorders mm. like really breaking it down to how you know like elements of the human condition that people can relate to mm. can sometimes be helpful in Absolutely. helping them to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, if I said to somebody I have an anxiety disorder, <laughs> they might not understand, but if I say that, mm. you know, sometimes I perceive a situation as much worse than it is mm-hmm. even though there is no 
indication that it it's that bad but my yeah. mind builds it up and i feel anxious and my heart starts racing and for hours i can't get the thought out of my head no. and i ruminate and ruminate and ruminate yep then they might be able to re- understand some of that at least for sure. they might be able to relate yeah Yeah, because at the end of the day, at some point in anyone's life, they've ruminated on something. Yeah, at some point in anyone's life, they've not felt like getting out of bed, and and of course, you you want to draw that line where you're able to say yes, but you know, this is if you've been doing that for two weeks at a time or four weeks at a time, but even just having that that one connection to you immediately sort of gets rid of that barrier. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, what was your you? Uh, have written about this in newspapers, you come out and publicly told your story of how you suffered with mental health mm-hmm. um declining at at certain points in your life when yes. you were studying etc. Yes. What was the thing that made you decide that you need to get help? Um it's a very complex question, I think. Um unfortunately, unfortunately for many many people who've been in my position um from what I've been hearing um and for myself as well i think there was no particular point um and i think that really just speaks to this whole notion that it was before and after your mental illness you know i think um for a lot of people that's not the reality and and i think even for people who haven't had it as severe um really it's a process um and and you know seeking help is not directly correlated with you getting better straight away and i think that's important to understand but at the same time engaging in that help seeking process in different elements um more sort of apt thing for me to draw on is that i've engaged in help seeking and i've sort of like sought that help in a myriad of ways over a long period of time and mm-hmm. i think it was more that resilient that resilience that even if it wasn't working straight away if it wasn't working a week in a month in you know 6 mm. months in at some points that mm. taking any opportunity as, as you are able to to kind of continue engaging and trying to find different ways to access that help means that at some point you'll be able to look back and say okay like mm. it was at that point that things started changing mm, for mm. me so you said that you can't always um know what will work you have to keep trying different mm-hmm. avenues of getting help mm-hmm. this is something very important because i personally know so many people mm. who had a couple of dissatisfactory experiences sure with psychologists maybe they didn't gel yes maybe they didn't know how to go in and speak and so the psychologist didn't know how to start sure uh or maybe they just got bounced bounced around in the system here that people were not giving them appointments mm. or you know this and that mm-hmm. and that completely made them lose faith yes. in the system or there are people i know who hesitate to go in and speak to a psychologist because they don't want to open the floodgates of emotions yes and for so for these reasons then people don't end up getting help because sure. Sure. it hasn't worked sure so for me i had the I was lucky that I got the I've I've seen I've seen four different psychologists now. Yes. One for the first couple of years who in hindsight I realized she wasn't as helpful as I thought. I just kept paying her a bunch of money and going to her for two years. Mm. It's not her fault. It was probably not the right fit for me. Sure. But um she it's not to say she didn't help me at all. No. I I made a lot of improvements in a few areas. Mm-hmm. But another one I went to see just for one session that I, that was the time I got a mental health care plan and yep. I went to see her for one session yeah. and she s- looked at me and she said so what are your problems 
And I, no. I was like, <laughs> I feel low self-esteem. Yes. I worried about achieving things. Yes. I'm worried about being fat. Yes. So I sort of reeled off a list of problems. And she's like, all right, okay, let's tackle them one by one. Fat, what are you doing for exercise? And I was like, I no. walked my dog. Oh, gosh. And she's like, okay, that's not exercise. You need to go to, Ooh. you know, like go swimming. If you can't go to the gym, you need to go to the gym. Okay. Uh, and you need to, uh, you know, um, improve your diet. There's some resources I can point you at how to improve your diet. Okay, what's the next one? Time management. All right, so how can you organize your time? No. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. So she was very bad. Yeah. But I'm I'm glad that I, that didn't dissuade me from going on and finding another psychologist who turned out to be wonderful, and then I have another one who's wonderful. Yeah. But so many people have bad experiences like this. Yeah. And they go back saying, this sucks. Yes. Psychologists suck. They can't help me. Yes. 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 Very real. <laughs> very, very, very real concern. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, it, it goes back to what you were saying before about that good fit. You know, I think people really, um, people forget that when you're going into a session, like it's not the same as you were when you're going into like a GP, mm. you know, or like a specialist clinic, because at the end of the day, you're not like building an emotional relationship with the person that you're sitting with, obviously within the professional capacity, is such an important part of how much you get from those sessions. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, really all it comes down to is being true to yourself, not trying to force yourself into trying to fit with this person um, and knowing that there is so many, you know, clinicians out there, so many therapists Mm. and and psychologists out there, counsellors who can sort of sit with you and work with you in different ways. Even if, you know, they have the same title, the same training, like the way that they gel with you, their own experiences as well will be shaping how they interact with you. Mm. Um, And so at the end of the day, um, not like you said, not being dissuaded by difficult experiences and and not seeing that as you know a failing on your part Mm. not seeing as that that as a failing on the therapist part um because that type of sort of like reeling off and the list and the you know might work for someone who's very particular about that type of stuff and just wants to see results straight away um and you know for some people like the issues and the the challenges run deeper there's more complexity involved when culture comes into it there's so many different factors and i think um yeah, just not being dissuaded is, is really, really mm. important. And the other thing is as, as well, like I, I've seen a couple of um, therapists myself and um, the first one that I saw um, that had, you know, a particular sort of speciality in a, a particular area um, was the perfect fit for me at that point in time mm. because that element of my life, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's like family, whether it's relationships, whether it's motivation and career-related job stuff, um, at that point in my life, that particular issue that I was dealing with in sort of detail, she was perfect for me. That's the training that she'd had, that was the experience that she had. And a lot of those conversations and a lot of the way that we delved into that stuff, it, she was perfect. Um, going back after six years about a completely different issue, you know, when it came to my relationship, for example, instead of, for example, my family, um, going into that conversation and having her sort of ask me the similar questions or put the focus back on my family when really, you know, it should have been on me um, is not a failing on her part, but just that we weren't sort of suited to each other at that point in time. So it doesn't even need to be that they completely don't gel with you. It could just be that at that point, Mm -hmm. you know, their experiences or the way that they sort of handled the situation, it was not right for you. And that doesn't have to speak again to her as a clinician or me as someone who's divulging you know 
it's not that you're not saying enough mm. it's not that you're not being vulnerable enough because at the end of the day it's a difficult thing to do walking through you know and and sitting down and someone sharing and saying this is who i am as a person this is what's building me it's very very difficult and i think what it comes down to is recognizing whether it's fitting or not and not making a, a personal thing to mm. you or to the therapist mm. and just saying it's okay we'll find someone else mm. and and there is i mean there's so many incredible incredible um therapists out there that have such a wide range of you know experiences and and it is really a lock and key type of thing you just kind of have to look at what is the best fit for you um and and not be discouraged mm. by it not going so well mm. straight away yeah mm. mental health is not like other aspects of health where i mean somebody might have a chronic disease mm. uh, physiological which mm-hmm. needs ongoing management mm-hmm. which may have complications mm. but there is some form of usually mm. often there is unknown causes and people ha- are left in mystery but yes. usually there is some f- treatment plan yes <laughs> but mental sorry physical health but mental health is not like that no you can uncover layers you can uncover feelings that you didn't know you had that you couldn't name yes it requires a bit of patience mm-hmm. a lot of patience a lot of patience <laughs> and people might feel guilty sometimes mm. or that they're being self indulgent mm. that there's no reason to sit and uh, ruminate on these things there's no reason to dig up old wounds no but it is it is important and, and the people f- often feel guilty about seeking mental health they feel like they're sitting and glorifying their own pain they're feeling like they're wallowing yeah. did you feel guilty when you first started getting mental health treatment oh, so so guilty very yeah. very guilty um i think and in you know in this circumstance i can tell you what was the defining factor for me is that i have spent my entire life wanting to be well i am a people person first and foremost helping the people around me whether that's people that you know i directly relate to my family my friends in my relationships um or sort of the wider community i'd always sort of wanted to help people and so when it came to really opening myself and making myself vulnerable um in the situation as a means of getting help i so much guilt um but the way that i saw it um that really changed things for me was that i kind of made that connection that you can't help the people in your life you can't make the difference that you want to make or do the work that you want to do if you are not the best version of yourself mm. you know and 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 when i say the best version of yourself i don't mean perfectly healthy no issues everything you know fine and dandy and sunny but more so that you are you know making a committed effort to improving mm. and growing and managing learning. your issues exactly right learning from the things that have happened the adversities that have gone on and not letting them even in inadvertently affect you in a way that influences your work and who you are your identity and so for me seeking this help and and sitting down with someone and really getting to the the crux of these issues was not like a guilty thing anymore it was a means of improving me so that i could mm. go and make a better difference mm. you know my my passion is helping people yeah. and getting this help and allowing myself to break down those barriers that are stopping me from doing that in mm. the most effective way mm. possible for me was the the crux of it yeah. um and you know if you really look at it i mean anything that you do in your life the kind of person that you are and the things that you want to do whether that's you know in a certain area or career field whether that's in your relationships and the way that you handle you know those interpersonal issues like there's always an element where we're like doing something that could be improved 
if we don't have these things that are sort of brewing in the background. Mm. Um, and so definitely there was an element of guilt, mm. but I think a, a large part of it is being honest with yourself um, and, and sort of, yeah, not being scared to be vulnerable because yeah. at the end of the day, like in any means that is going to help you more towards, you know, your goals. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think that's a fantastic way to look at it. And I have also looked at it like that, that mm. me going and getting help is going to help me be a better mm. person, a better sister, a better daughter, a better friend. Exactly right. Uh, but sometimes I get very angry and resentful that why should I have to find a justification to go? Like, why should I have to find yeah. a, an other people-centric justification to go to therapy yeah. like me going to therapy is going to make me a better person therefore i'm justified why can't i be selfish and just go mm. just say i'm going to therapy because mm. i matter yes. and i'm you know worth this mm. it takes a lot of um, it takes a that's a struggle to think that way i, I might have those brief rebellious thoughts mm. you know i'm going to therapy just because i'm a person yeah. and i'm me yeah but all of which is true. It is true, yeah. but it it that feeling doesn't last long because I immediately revert to <laughs> the more appro- acceptable yeah. approach of yeah. I'm going to therapy so I can be a better person sure. for others, sure. so that it feels less selfish. Yes, to do that. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, I think um, it's thinking about how it is as a means to an end. You know, sometimes um, that what you see as selfishness is really, I mean, selfishness in in the best possible way, Mm. you know, wanting to sort of build that identity for yourself, Mm. you know, especially if you are like we are and wanting to do those things for other people all the time. And that can take so much out of you. Um, And so, you know, if it means that the motivation behind it is that you want to do that for yourself, I don't think that's at all selfish. I think Mm. that's brave. I think that's courageous and something that, you know, you should be really giving more of a voice to. Mm. Um, and for me, it's it's a balancing act, you know. I, I think at the end of the day, the improvement of myself, whether it's being driven by this need to look after myself, be me, have that identity and make a stand about what I deserve and what I think I deserve, um, you know, sometimes needs to be balanced with the, like I'm doing it as a means of improving myself so that I can help my community better, Mm. that I can have a voice of people who um, Mm. are not able to speak openly about these issues, that I can support my own friends and my family and Mm. my networks and really finding that balance. But at the end of the day, you're working towards really just, yeah, being happier. Yeah, yeah. Whether that's for yourself, whether that's for the people around you. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think they both need to have sort of equal weighting. Yeah, right. There needs to be a balance because both of those are valid things. Exactly right. It, it, both of those are valid and important thoughts. You should be happier just because mm. you exist. You're mm. an individual and you matter at least to yourself, if yeah. not to no one else. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. Mm. And also, it's okay to feel selfish. It's okay to not feel selfish. Mm. It's okay to accept the duality of the situation that both yeah. these thoughts exist in my mind. Yeah. And this is how it is. I, I think a lot large part of therapy is becoming okay with yourself. Oh, yeah. Improving is, is definitely one thing, but just yeah. accepting yeah. the that this is who you are and there's nothing wrong with the way it is. 100%. Mm. No, for sure. And I, I you know, I, I think when you speak about duality, when you speak about what is and isn't okay and stuff like that, I think 
the way that I see it is that it's all part of the human condition. Mm. You know, at any given point in your life, you're going to have different motivations for what you're doing. Yeah. You're going to have different things that drive you. The way that you feel about yourself is going to change. Um, and yeah, really just coming to terms with the fact that change is probably the only constant. And, you know, like that flux is something that you just learn to work with rather than trying to fight at every given moment and yeah. thinking that you need to be selfish and then you don't need to be selfish. You know, it's, mm. yeah, I mean... I think drawing healthy boundaries will help in managing oh, that flux. Yes, sir. Very important. Because the boundary helps you to simultaneously accept your personal motivations mm-hmm. and balance them with your motivations to work with others. Mm. Without boundaries, that that balance is harder to achieve because you're constantly feeling like you're cheating mm. on something that because it hasn't been defined clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say boundaries, mm. I, I mean... For me personally, it was drawing the boundary between my existence as a uh, as a person who lives and exists to love and serve my loved ones. Yes. And as a person who exists solely just with like myself mm-hmm. and I, my identity is, you know, not influenced by my family. I mean... It is influenced, but my identity can be separate from what is influenced by my family as well. Mm -hmm. That boundary was very hard for me to establish for many years of my life. Yeah. Um, But I think it was once I've started the act of establishing boundaries, that guilt is reduced because now I know that there is a clear space for somebody else's love. That space hasn't diminished. Mm -hmm. But there's now just a demarcated space as well for me to love myself. Exactly right. Um, Yeah, that helps to achieve the balance better. For sure, definitely. Um, Yeah, I, I think when it comes to boundaries as well, like I think really it comes down to listening to yourself. Mm. Um, I'm not sure about you, but I know from my experience, like I spent so long fighting those thoughts, you know, like I kept telling myself that it was guilty to think of myself. I kept telling myself that my role as a daughter, as a partner, as a friend um, was to serve the people around me. And that that's what made up such a strong element of my identity. Now, I think now that hasn't changed, but what has changed is that, like you said, making that space for that part of you and also making another space where it is about you mm. and and not having that seen as like a selfish thing. Mm. Um, and, and really, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before in terms of finding that space for yourself so that you can, you know, you have this clear space that you can give to others as well if that's what your motivation is. And, yeah. and for a long time, that was what it was for me, was finding that space to be comfortable with myself, to look after myself in the most effective way possible mm. um, and making that direct link that if I could do that, that mm. means that I could serve the people around me better yeah. as well. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, listening listening to yourself and really just being true to who you are mm. um, rather than what society is telling you and what everyone else is, you know, has an opinion on is yeah. so, so important when it comes to this stuff. It makes your relationships with others better because you are practicing the biggest and most important relationship, mm. which is the one with yourself. 100%. You're practicing listening to yourself, yeah. empathizing with yourself, honoring yeah. and com- compassion yeah. for your own thoughts. You're practicing not being repulsed mm. by parts of yourself that scare you. Mm-hmm. And when you can practice that effectively for yourself, yeah. you can show a lot more compassion, empathy, understanding for others. 100%. You can see their humanness because suddenly mm. it's not, you're not worried about, am I 
socially acceptable enough and then you're not worried if the other person's socially acceptable enough no you know oh i'm so complex and screwed up and beautiful and mm. so are you yes yeah exactly right it's beautifully put oh <laughs> thank you <laughs> um so how did you find out about the services sure i you? um also a very good question um i initially started my journey I guess um at Headspace. Mm-hmm. So Headspace is the youth, National Youth Mental Health oh, Foundation. Oh, you went to a local Headspace center? I did. Okay. Yeah. How old so were you? I was 18. Okay. Yeah. So on the older end, I think. Um so Headspace is for the 12 to 25 year old um age bracket, but yeah, I mean it like thankfully a friend of mine had access to service before, um and he kind of took me in um and yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard these days because there is so many different services out there it's very hard to know where to start um but often your gp can be a good um source of information as well um but headspace for example i went in i had a intake worker who sat with me kind of just had a conversation about what what had been going on it wasn't you know like what can i help you with or what can we solve or what do you have you been diagnosed with it was more you know what what are the issues that are in your life at the moment um so headspace is really great in that sort of space somebody told you about headspace mm. but if it hadn't been for that word of mouth mm. uh would you have then gone online probably a psychologist or yeah. young something like that yeah 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 gp is an interesting thing mm. a lot of people might feel embarrassed to go to their regular gp or family gp yes and obviously that's something that you can educate yourself that the gp is trained to handle so they're not going to judge you not at all for example in my family my gp is actually friends yes with my mom yes yours yeah. too <laughs> i can imagine yeah 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 yes for a long yeah. time yeah but actually mm. when um when i started going to a psychologist and i realized how professional they are mm. and manage their professional boundaries then i realized the gp is similar exactly, too exactly yeah um just because the, the you know just because she knows my family doesn't mean that she won't provide me yeah. a judgment free service yes but also if you're not comfortable you can just go to another gp and set exactly you right. can have that relationship and the management of your mental health mm. with another gp who you like 100% and in fact i did that for mm. a long time mm. um and yeah i mean at the end of the day like they yeah having trust in the system is definitely hard um but it is really one of the first steps yeah. so it can be very important to sort of nature um nurture that mm. and it, like you said if you don't feel comfortable going to your family mm. gp it's a very real concern especially in the indian community i think yeah. um but yeah there's definitely options for you out there mm. um there's a lot of um organizations that have gps built in so headspace i know has a gp built in um a couple of community health services as well um mental health services um have GPs Sorry. that are oh, that's okay. Yeah. Um I have GPs that are yeah, kind of integrated into their service and thus have sort of that focus on the mental health um aspect which can really help a lot as well. Um yeah, online is probably your a good place to start. Um I'm only weary as well that there is just so many services that it can be a bit overwhelming online. Yeah, you can look at if you're not falling within the category of youth that can access headspace and things like that mm. then you could go to APS website Australian Psychological Society 100% and they have a find a find a therapist or find a psychologist service yes. on the website yes. that's how i found private private psychologist yeah 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 that's how i found one of my psychs yes uh, and apparently these days uh, all the psych practices have websites and they do google adwords so you could really look melbourne psychology and yeah or the area that you're in yeah, yeah, yeah the exactly. age group yeah yeah, mm. yeah definitely 
Um, I think, yeah, for me, um, cost was a big barrier mm. as well, especially as a kid. Mm. So I'm talking like younger younger people now, I guess. Um, so in that sense, that's why Headspace was super helpful for me. Um, but yeah, th- that being said, there is plenty of um, really amazing private psychologists that you can get yeah. the Medicare rebates from yeah, as well. Yeah. So, But that frustrates me continuously that people mm. have to go to such lengths to find mental health mm. help. Mm-hmm. The government doesn't cover on a me- me- Medicare me- healthcare plan. You get ten sessions. Yes. With a psychologist. Yes. Um, I I have to find out more about how they deemed that ten sessions was enough. Mm. But um, this is so unfair that people go to ten sessions and they're worried that what if they they go and they establish a relationship with the therapist sure. and that they can't continue beyond ten sessions. No, because of the situation. Because of the financial or the affordability, the accessibility of the yes. service. Yes. I know so many people that would really love to go and see a therapist, but they can't afford. No. Sometimes they can't even afford to pay it on the discounted rate. Yes. And I wish that there were more like Headspace, there were more free services for people of all yeah. ages. Yes. Um, even if there was something that looked like a pure support groups. Yes. That was um, that were led or, or facilitated by yeah. a trained co- yeah. psychologist. Sure. But yeah. you know, sort of like um, you know how Alcoholics Anonymous has an Al-Anon program yes. for friends yes. and family of yes. addicts in recovery. Yes. Something like that, which mm. is sitting and talking about, and mm-hmm. I'm sure it exists. Uh, everywhere but just not on the scale that it is required no and you know for what it's worth i think um i i know um the the commission is doing a, a bunch of really good um work into the peer workforce and and same with um headspace at the moment we're looking into our peer support programs as well mm-hmm. um so that element of it it's definitely being explored i think unfortunately um because it's such a fresh topic i mean in terms of like to the extent that the awareness now exists and people are starting to access those services. Unfortunately, the demand is much, much bigger than the supply um, for a a bunch of reasons. And I think different organizations and different sort of um, sectors are handling that in different ways. Um, But yeah, I mean, for sure, I think we need need more of the peer support. We need more of the the free services. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean... For what it's worth, though, I think that shouldn't dissuade you from accessing that help. And definitely um, in terms of like the ongoing need and, and the establishing a relationship, there is avenues where there is a little bit of um, sort of buffer, I think. Um, there's ways of services that you're accessing linking into linking you into other services. Mm. Um, those, 10 calendar se- those 10 sessions are for a calendar year. So there's ways of sort of... Um, like I know one of the things that Headspace does, for example, is we've got peer support workers across our network and we'll have you see a clinician once in maybe a month or two months mm. and in between you're, you're meeting up with a peer support worker, mm. you know. So there's ways, um, and I, I know different community mental health um, clinics do a lot of that as well. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of the, the peer support work that is being accessed that then doesn't need to go under the Medicare mm. and mm. there's a bit more flexibility. And so it's slowly changing, yeah. um, but unfortunately because it is a very system-based thing, yeah. It, it needs to sort of happen over time, yeah. which is the problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thankfully, well, if, yeah. If there's so many things that are already there, I think the government needs better marketing. Facilitation, yeah, 100%. And, and messaging, you yes. know, yeah. campaigns, ad campaigns to tell people how to access this, yeah. to tell people that, hey, these services exist. Yes. I know that the Victorian government has uh, put in $200 million mm. in establishing mental 
mental health services and yes. improving them. Yes. Supplying more clinicians yes. to the field. Yes. Uh, improving um, facilities. So yeah. that's really good. Mm. And I hope that they back that up with just more honest, transparent communication with people. Yeah, that's that's been one of the big, um, definitely one of the big factors as well. And look, it's it's twofold. I think one of it, one of the issues is managing that demand and and not like, I guess awareness is so important. But at the same time, you know, you are making people aware of these issues and they realize that they need to access that help. And then they're going and waiting mm. a month or two months or three months to see someone, mm. um, especially with you know the older demographic or even sort of the in-between demographic there is fantastic services for children definitely but um oh you know the young the Mm. youth um but yeah i i think it that being said as well one of the really um sort of underappreciated things is um self sort of development and self informed practices mm. as well um and I'm, I'm talking in a way where i mean there is so many incredible resources that are available online even to sort of educate yourself um about the issues that you might be facing but also the people around you are facing mm. um i think one of the things that people really forget is that that stigma that exists um really impacts how well you recover as well um, and so whether it means that in the meantime, as you are accessing these services, you're also sort of informing yourself and informing the people around you so that they can better support you mm-hmm. um, and sort of building those connections and mm-hmm. the vulnerability in the community means that some of that pressure is lifted. And I'm not by any means saying that that's going to be like, you're, you know, solving your problems and you won't have to see a therapist. Um, I think it's very important to be true to yourself about your needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, that can really have an impact and building that network mm-hmm. means that you are supported mm. whilst you're waiting, for example, to access services or in between mm. sessions as well. So your um, your role and what the commissioners at the National Mental Health Commission are doing mm. are trying to imagine what the mental health landscape will look like in 2030 and then reverse engineering the process. That's mm. right. Mm-hmm. So how do you anticipate the, this, um, res- these resources to educate yourself? How would, will they be made available to people? You're a person sitting at home and you're starting to feel terrible. Yes. You are contemplating going and seeing a psychologist or you're typing in Google. Yes. Constantly feeling sad yes. or something like that. Yes. Uh, or, or you're further down the track in the process where you've made an appointment to see the psych, but it's a month before you can see them. Yes. In the meantime, as you said, it's mm. important to make people, uh, it's important for people to know the importance of whatever importance importance mm-hmm. it's important for people to know that they can go and educate them start educating themselves yes so these resources how can they exist for mm. example mm. the victorian government has the better health dot vic the website. better health website yeah dot com. where you can go and look at all of the disease the common medical conditions and they've broken it down so simply yeah into so is there some will there be a, some kind of portal like that yeah where people can go and look up some of the these feelings or these thoughts and ideas or mm. you know not not a diagnosis diagnostic tool mm. but just a portal that talks about mental health 
Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I think there's so many of those that already exist. Okay. So it's really more about linking people in, I think. Okay. Um, and in terms of linking people into those services, and obviously over the next 10 years, you're hoping that you're developing better informed services, more evidence-backed services as well. Um, really, the idea, and I don't know if this quite answers your question, but the idea is that it's not seen as a standalone thing. Mm. So a lot of the work that we're doing is um, wanting to go into schools and educating children through the right. education means. Um, it means... Um, we have a new sort of thing that we're putting together called the Mentally Healthy Workplace, mm. um, which, again, looks at how sort of mental health is sort of seen in the workplace and how it can be better supported, Yeah, um, you know, in corporations. And these things that are sort of already happening in society, the justice system is a huge one mm. as well. And, and how do we better sort of um, support offenders that, you know, may have these mental health conditions that are driving mm. the things okay, that are happening. So, that makes so sense, really, yeah. you know, it's and and throughout these services and through stuff like awareness campaigns um, and, and getting, I guess, funding um, organizations mm. to do better work in the awareness side and the prevention side and the service delivery. It really is about making it a more talked about thing. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. so throughout all of these things, like it can be that direct help to you, but it's also these are the things that exist. This is what's happening at the moment in this the mm. space. Mm. And and one of the things that is really like one of the big profound things for me was also really thinking about the fact that really everyone has a mental health. Mm. It's not just specific to people who have challenges in this space or issues or illnesses if it gets yeah. to that. It's that every single person has a mental health. And at different points in your life, you're managing that in different ways. Right, yes. Whether that's grief, whether that's adversity, whether that's changing a job or a country, mm. you know, everyone is... And that that still counts mm. as mental health. That's still yeah. looking after yourself and really making it so easily accepted. Mm is a big way, like it will go a big way in allowing people to access those services yeah. because then it means that people are talking more openly about it. It means that they're more, like there's, you know, I mean, the idea is that people are developing and we will develop better ways that people can access that easily. Mm -hmm. I know accessibility has been a huge, huge issue, especially if you look at the culturally and linguistically diverse communities as well. Like immediately you're seeing like you're not, we're not re represented. Yeah, that's a huge thing. Mm. Um, and I personally would love to change that or yeah, go some way yeah. in changing that. But, um, yeah, like there's just all of these things that are really very system-based mm. factors. Mm. Um, and open communication about it, and and more people being more vulnerable and yeah. wanting to be more vulnerable can go a big way. I think so true. When you say everyone has a mental health, that's so important for us to recognize. Mm. So, for example, practically every one of us will have a cold. Mm -hmm. Many times oh, in our lives. Yeah. Everyone will have cuts and grazes. Everyone will have something or the other that changes the equilibrium of their physical bodies, right? Yep. And these things are taught in school. For example, hand-washing hygiene is taught in school. Mm -hmm. Or what to do when you're sick. Mm. Or, you know, um, all of these things are taught to children. And children know these things by, by the time. Yes. How to express when you're feeling sick, whatever. Yes. How, what to expect when you're feeling sick. Mm-hmm. But if we get children to start thinking in the same way yeah. as some sort of mental health hygiene, yes. when they're children, that yes. what to do when you're feeling scared and overwhelmed and yes. what to do when you're feeling really lonely for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, you're right. It, you know, this will get people in the frame of mind to go and educate themselves further if they start feeling any of these things. Exactly right. When we start feeling sick, mm. when we're kids, obviously mm. our first point of contact is our parents. Mm -hmm. But as we grow older, if we start feeling 
ill, mm. automatically most of us will just go and look it up online yes. or make it a priority to go to the doctor. Yes. But with mental health, it hasn't been the same proactiveness instilled in us since ch- childhood. Not at all. And um, if anything, it's been oppressed. Like mm. oftentimes, you know, like perfect example is that if you fall over and you hurt yourself, you you know break a hand or arm. Mm. Um, immediately you go to your parents and you're like, this is a problem and it's hurting me and I'm yeah. sad. And they're like, oh, let me help you. Mm. You know, but you go and you're like, I'm sad. And it's like, man up, you know, like mm. get, you know, like it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, it'll, it'll be pass. fine. Don't make such a big deal out of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly the experience that you see reflected in adults as well. Yeah. Um, and really, yeah, changing that rhetoric and the language yeah, is yeah, yeah. so, so important. And teaching children the language to express yeah. their difficult emotions, just like they express that this hurts, ow. Yes. Going and expressing that to your parents. Yeah. And what you said about parents um, dismissing mental health concerns is not from a point of view of, I think, not harming caring. the child. Not it's not that all. they don't care. Yeah. It's just that the parents themselves don't realize that. Mm. So if you can see a physical wound on your kid, mm. you're not going to say to them, trust me, it's going to be okay. No. You're going to, if they're crying, you're going to try and tell them, it'll, it'll be better soon, I promise you, but let's take care of it. Yeah. Let's put something on it. Yeah. There, now rest something. up. Yeah. But if the kid is, you know, mm. concerned about um, the, something that they can't express, something that's going on in their minds, mm. parents often say things like, just trust me, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Or just do it. Yeah. Or they might yell at their kids because the kids are lashing out. They might, the parents might react badly. No. So, you know, and the way that I see it as well is that I often... Um, I often feel like adults are really just like young children inside themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 like I mean, a, a good example as well is that, like, if you look at like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And you talk about safety and like the things that you just need, as like to function in society and and comfort and stuff come sort of after that. I feel like, especially as migrants, um, you know, having a roof over your head, being able to feed your children and give them a better education and a and safety you know, in the place that they live. Like, all of these things were so at the forefront yeah. of their the human experience for them that, you know, stuff like feelings and yeah. emotions and sadness were not given the space to develop yeah. and to be free and to be processed. And so, and, and inadvertently that gets passed on. And it's not by any chance to say, like you said, that it's that they want bad for their children. It's that, if anything, they want so good for their children that the, these things, like that's how they've learned to handle them and they, they're teaching yeah. their kids they're the same to make, things. to make their kids tough. Yeah. Exactly right. And you know what you said about when you're a mig- in a migrant family, these things don't have the space, even mm. not just from the parents' perspective, from, from the children's as well. Gosh, yeah. You feel worried to burden your parents yeah. with any more demands from yourself. Exactly right. Because they're already struggling. 100%. Uh, it's the, that guilt once yeah. again comes in when you're yeah. the child of migrant yeah. parents, particularly first generation yeah. families that have moved here. Yes. You see your parents suffering financially. You see their struggles to mm. deal. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you want to do is, hey, hey, pay attention to me. <laughs> hey, I have this need. Yeah. Take care of me. Yeah. They're already giving you, you know. No. And yeah, mm. I think for me as well, that was such a big part. When I came to Australia, my family mm. um, was going through a lot of upheaval, mm. not just the actual move to another country, but also uh, mental health challenges within my family. Mm. Uh, and I used to feel I, I wasn't as uh, self-sacrificing mm. as I sound, mm. but I still wasn't as forthright about my emotional needs either. Sure. 
And I'm not alone in this. You are like that. Uh, pretty much so many. And it's not just even migrant families. In no. any family yeah. in which there is mental health issues or the parents are not dealing with their mental health properly, mm. the children find it very difficult to assert their own needs yeah. and demand the space. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And, and you know, it, it comes back to the fact that they, as children, were probably not given the space. As adolescents, as adults, mm. have not been given the space to really think about what has influenced them, mm. what has changed them. There is this also this underlying notion that, you know, kids have their place and, you know, parents have their place and, and even just vulnerability with your own family, yeah. you know, with your own kin is not there because it's like, no, like I, I, that's not, I mean, I'm the parent, I'm meant to be strong, I'm meant to be all of these things. And I think, yeah, open communication is just so, so important, yeah. you know, and really just like making yourself vulnerable mm. and not seeing that as a weakness, but really as a strength, mm. because then you're teaching your kids to do the same thing and you're teaching their kids to do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, like, that's what it comes down to. Mm. I found that my parents are very supportive when I'm vulnerable with them and they've started mm. becoming more vulnerable with me now. Yes. But it's that a process. That yeah, that didn't stop me from feeling a lot of shame mm. to express some of my more dysfunctional mm-hmm. mental health issues to them. Yes. Um actually sitting down and acknowledging that this is the reality. Mm. I mean everybody could see that mm. this is the reality. But when you actually sit down and acknowledge it, mm. I felt like I'm a failure and I'm giving up. And to them, mm. it's going to be like my kid is making excuses for herself and giving up. Or, or I felt that they might pity me and they might go, oh, my, my poor kid. Mm. And I didn't want any of those. So I had to I had to be, become comfortable with opening up mm. and sharing really my... my Overcoming the fear of disappointing my parents. Yes. And sharing oh my God, what yes. was happening. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, and, and you know what? Like, I think um, it comes down to that, that little, the balancing act that we were talking about before, mm-hmm. you know, for me, um, for a long time, yes, the disappointment to my parents thing was so huge. And you know what? I'll be completely honest with you as well. I feel like half the reason why I've worked so hard is almost like trying to compensate mm-hmm. for the pain that I've caused them. And that's sad. It's really, really horrible. But I think at the same time as well, um, teaching myself or learning how to let myself be open and mm. let myself be vulnerable, um, apart from the, you know, wanting to, I guess, like getting over that fear of disappointment is, is also um, really as a means of being thankful to them. Mm. Because like you said, like I, I, it's the same with my family. Like I know it's been very difficult for us, um, especially when things were really bad for me. But at the same time, like, the love was always there, yeah. you know, it was never, I mean, it was d- expressed in very different ways. In some ways, it was not very helpful mm. to me and my recovery. And I think that that's where that responsibility comes in that you look after yourself. Mm. But that love was always, always there. And over time, it has changed mm. as well. And and me starting to be a little bit more open and a little bit more open has allowed them to do the same, like you said. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of the day, yeah, I think that's what it comes down to is that being able to because you you taking that space mm. to be free and open about these issues means that you're giving them that space to do the same. Yeah. And in a lot of circumstances like this, it's really, yeah, seeing yeah. everyone, including your parents and your grandparents and your wider community as human beings and not just, you know, like yeah. the pedestal, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Not just as their role in the family, that you're the mum, you're the dad. Mm. I have also had a role in educating my parents that if I'm an individual, so are you. Mm? Before you were my mum and yes. before you were somebody's wife, yeah. you were you and you still that's still in you. Yeah. So 
I've had to help my parents as well individuate a little mm. bit from me for as sure. I have from them. For sure. But also going back to what you said that um, allowing your parents to express their love by taking care of you. Mm. We often people who have mental illness grow up feeling so guilty for taking up space that yeah. you feel like your parents can't handle mm. what you what you put out to them. Yes. It is such a relief to yeah. realize that they can handle it. Of course. Not everyone's parents can, but when no. your parents can or when your family or loved ones, friends can handle yeah. you, yeah. it's such a big burden off you and then you can just allow yourself to just yeah let yourself be yeah you and your entirety of your blobfish yeah. blobfishy beauty yeah. of everything yeah. you know yeah dysfunction yes. and your parents can take it it's yeah. okay yeah uh, for me that was so beautiful and liberating to fully expose myself after years of holding myself in, in yeah oh you know my God. Yeah. for fear of taking up the least amount of emotional space possible yes um i could yeah. just say this is me and i'm blah yeah and my parents could take it 100 percent. and look um i have to say as well that if you are in a space where your parents are unable to take it mm. and and it could be your entire life that you go mm. that they're not you know able to handle it or able to help you in the most productive way yeah it never has to ever speak to you as a person yes it never has to speak to how well you have communicated how much trouble you have or haven't gone to mm. you know how much help that you've been to them i know that guilt aspect can really seep into so many other factors of your life and mm. and there was a, a small amount of time not because of anything that they had or hadn't done but i felt like they would never understand mm. and and you know there's there's like certain elements of my condition and my experience that they won't understand mm. and i think it took me a really long time to make peace with the fact that if they are not understanding, it doesn't make it any less valid. It doesn't make it any less important. Yes. And and owning your story, owning your experience, and being able to speak to it in the most honest way possible for you, irrespective of how anyone else is going to take it, yeah. including the people that are the closest to you, mm. is so important. Yeah. Because unfortunately for a lot of people, it's not a reality, you know? That is very true. So, if your parents aren't able, if you don't have that relationship with your family, mm. if your family isn't able to handle that, that doesn't mean that you don't have the right to express it to anyone. Not at all. You definitely deserve to express it to a friend, mm. to a partner, to anyone who's close to you. Yeah. And if you don't have anyone right now that you can do that, mm. it doesn't mean that you'll be forever like that because... Mm. I mean, I know that there's this feeling of being worried that your friends might leave you if you express too much. Yeah. Your friends might be like, oh, my God, she's a bummer. Yep. Um, but you are entitled mm. to finding somebody in the world who will take that weight yeah. off you for a while. Yes. And, they, and you will. You will find somebody. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and at the end of the day, like, you holding on is a testament to your strength and your experience. Yeah. And no one can take that from you. Absolutely. And you know what you said before also struck with me was um, if others are not there to be able to um, accept your mm. your needs, that doesn't mean they're not valid. Mm. So when the so what does growing up mean? Growing up means being self sufficient, right? Mm. So a part of being independent and self sufficient is not just it's not just a duty or responsibility but there's also a right associated with it Very which much. is that you have the right mm. to completely mm. accept your mental health needs yeah 
Uh, if somebody else doesn't can't do that for you, if they can't accept it, if they can't bear it, if they can't support you, mm. that doesn't mean that your needs are invalid. Yeah. And a part of being an adult mm. is also, or a part of being any human, mm. just like you do your duty yeah. as a person, yeah. you can take the right yes. to fully feel and yes. accept your needs. Yes. Even if that means that you have to take actions to serve yourself, yes. you have to draw boundaries to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's a part of being mm-hmm. a self-sufficient individual. For sure. And I think um in that circumstance as well like that acceptance can look very different in different ways. Like I often um hear that you know people are like the the only way that I can accept myself is to make sure that I'm going to therapy and I'm doing this this and this and this and like this is the only way. But sometimes accepting yourself is just letting yourself be. Yeah. Sometimes expect accepting yourself is getting to the end of a horrible day and you know all of these things have happened and you feel completely just done. Mm. And just giving yourself permission to be like I'm going to go to sleep and tomorrow is going to be a fresh start. Yeah. You yeah. know like it really looks very different for different people. Yeah. Um and really that's where that listening to yourself comes in. Yeah. Is giving yourself True. the space to do what you need to do yeah. as a human being and knowing that that's okay. Exactly. Sometimes accepting yourself means acknowledging that it's 2 p.m. on a tuesday the rest of the world is at work mm. but you are exhausted yeah. and you need to take a nap it's totally fine and that's the only thing you need to take and that's okay yeah. you that's okay to have a depression nap yeah not a problem you know and yeah mm-hmm. exactly for sure <laughs> hi listeners before we go any further i'd like to let you know that the next part of the podcast talks about suicide so if you want to skip that part Skip ahead about 6 or 7 minutes. Thanks. I was reading that suicide is the leading cause of death mm-hmm. among people between the ages of 15 and 34 years in Australia. Yep. That is massive. Mm. It's not any other kind of illness but mental illness mm-hmm. which is the leading cause of death. <sighs> yes. Do you do any work around suicide prevention or finding out inputs from communities about the causes of suicidal thoughts and ideation and completion? Yeah. Um fair amount of work, yeah. Um I think suicide unfortunately um it's so complex. It is a very complex issue. Um even, you know, in comparison to some other I guess mental health challenges um it's it it's very sort of it has a place of its own um because often people don't realize that even getting to the point of starting to have those thoughts um or you know inadvertently acting on them um there's so many factors that kind of lead up to that um i think at the end of the day like a lot of the things that we've talked about around how to open yourself up and and be vulnerable about these issues and um talk openly about these things really kind of comes into the suicide aspect of it as well in the sense that you know it it really comes down to trusting your instinct um if there are people in your community in your circles at work at school that you're worried about um not being afraid to ask them if they're doing okay and letting them know that you're there um again you know that that's really bringing it down to a much simpler issue than it is but um yeah it's it's a very complex issue i think i wish that there was more education in schools oh, yeah. for young people you and me both <laughs> yeah. yes to to talk about mm. suicide is a very difficult topic even the word to say that word is not easy no 
Yeah. But it is a reality. Mm-hmm. And I wish that instead of shielding young people from this, mm-hmm. if we acknowledged yeah. that, I mean, I was looking at statistics recently that children mm-hmm. as young as nine mm-hmm. are completing suicide in indigenous communities in Australia. That's nine right. years, That's right. nine, 12-year-old children. Yeah. I, When I was nine or 12 years old, I knew what suicide is, yes. but I had no idea yeah. that of the feelings that might cause anyone to actually get there that's right to that state of mind yes and these children are there and they've completed that yes and so it's a reality mm-hmm. it's not something that needs to be tiptoed or not needs to be shunned or, or needs to be hidden from children yes, yes. and children yeah. need to start learning the tools to identify among in themselves yes such feelings and in friends and bring it to the attention of somebody Mm -hmm. all the children who are you know in their teens need Mm -hmm. to know the language to ask each other about this that's right not just adults no 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 definitely not um and yeah i mean i think language is a huge huge thing in this situation as well um unfortunately the way that suicide has been sort of viewed in a whole different sort of range of ways has just not been in a healthy way i mean and and i'm I'm talking about talking about it yeah you know like it's often yeah just seen as very dramatic and theatrical um there's elements of it that are very you know i mean of course there's a cultural influence as well um and a lot of those things come back to that too but yeah i mean look it's not it's not as though it just happens you know there's a lot of things that kind of lead up to it there's a lot of factors that influence how you see it um why you think that it's an option for you um, and and so, like you said, like I think, emotional literacy, you know, mental health literacy, and and sort of knowing the signs, being able to look out for them, and teaching children in a way that is appropriate for them, mm. it can go a long way. Absolutely. Mm. So when I was young, and for most people, this is the case, mm. your elders school parents they teach you things Mm. like what is an appropriate touch if someone touches you what Mm. is inappropriate Mm. and they teach it to you in a friendly way Mm -hmm. wouldn't it be lovely if Mm. if children knew what 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 to do if your friend says that they want to kill themselves Mm. Uh, how to feel about it how to deal with it or what even forget about going to that extent what to do if your friend is sad all the time or is scared or is you know yes um, it's very important. Definitely. And and a huge part of it is how to best get help. Mm. You know, building trust relationships between your teachers, your school counselors, mm. um, being able to facilitate that even if they don't feel comfortable talking to their teachers, that they at least go and talk to their parents, mm. you know, or, or like a trusted auntie or uncle. Like there's so many avenues that you can teach. And it see, I mean... I think when it comes to like what to do when, you know, your friend is sad, it's a lot of pressure, mm. especially for the younger children. Yeah. Um. But even if you can just hit that mark of, if you hear stuff like this, even if you don't know what to do about it, tell someone. Yeah. Like tell someone that you trust who's mm. older. Mm. Tell someone that you can that you like love, and that will listen to you. Um. Can really. I mean, it's a simple way of even just getting a side in into. The situation, yes. Rather than putting that pressure on children to be like, you know, like if you're if they're feeling sad, and of course, I mean, you have to arm them with some tools to be able to help their friends too. Mm. Um, but yeah, th- that that open conversation is so yeah. so important. But what you were saying with the work 
with the work that the National Commission is doing or, or the roadmap for the next 10 years yes. is to get into schools and workplaces and make it okay to yes. talk about this, yes. that will definitely change the shape of society. I think so. Um, that will definitely so. change the way uh, we view mental health, suicide, yeah. workplace, mental health, yes. all of these things. Yeah, because it takes it out of the... So, you know, one of the things, I guess, um, the overriding thing has been that the mental health system and mental health in general has always sat with the health mm. system. And a big part of the health system is, like, symptoms and, like, identifying things and then diagnosing them and then the treatment and then you're well, you know? And the reality of the situation is that with mental health, that's not how it is. It's a journey. You're constantly learning adversity will change you in so many different ways from when you are born before you are born um now that we're learning about a lot of this like prenatal stuff as well before you're born to when you Mm -hmm. die Mm. like there's just so many different factors and so many different ways whether that is like how to deal with a relationship breakdown how to deal with grief and Mm. loss all the way to severe complex mental illness that you're living with every single day Mm. it just encompasses so many parts of your life yeah and it encompasses on, on sort of like a, you know, I guess, compartmentalized level too, it'll, it's going to affect your education. It's mm. going to affect um, how you're seen in the justice system and how you interact with broader society. Mm. You know, how it's going to interact how the kind of work that you do, the way that you approach your work, your relationships, it kind of goes into everything. It affects your physical body. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, yes. Yes. That like relationship. Um, among uh, girls and women mm. between the ages of 11 and up, mm. sort of 11 to 50, mm. anxiety is the leading cause of physical ill health That's as well. Right. 100%. Anxiety causes physical problems. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's so many. And this is the thing is that it doesn't just sit in the mel- like in the health system. Mm. It's not a. It this goes is the problem. This is education. It goes across social justice. Yeah. Crime prevention. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. And I think um, a big part of it is starting to see the reality of mm. how much it encompasses, mm. and as a means of that, providing people supports mm. to deal with those issues in these different ways, in those specialized ways. Yeah. Mm. There's so much work. I'm really excited to hear what the Mental Health Commission comes up with, mm. uh, what the future looks like, if, if it's anything judging by the really important and positive things mm. that you've discussed today. Mm. 2030 looks to be a good time mm. for mental health conversations and mm-hmm. Im- mental health landscape improving in Australia. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and mm. for being vulnerable and sharing your story and and your work and thank you for giving me the space to do that i think it's so important to talk about these things and yeah i'm just really honored and grateful to be here (laughs) and i look forward to following your journey and your progress and your work with all the things that you do in the future thank you so much bye Bye. niharika see you later recommends more podcasts more episodes more great shows keep listening to hear a show we recommend hi i'm christopher kimball host of milk street radio if you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food please check out the milk street podcast we travel around the world to find pizza in tokyo egyptian food in berlin and bhutanese farmers in vermont we speak to jamie oliver rachel ray al roker ina garden 
as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. We'll see you there. ACAST, A-cast. 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 A-cast